Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. It is that time again from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. I feel like, Scott, you had a little twang in your uh, voice. Twang, yeah. I was in (laughs) down south in Palo Alto. Today on The Breakdown, we are going to talk with Ronald George, who presided over the state Supreme Court as chief justice for 15 years. We'll hear what it was like issuing his landmark ruling in favor of same-sex marriage and what he thinks about the increasing politicization of the courts. I sort of said that right. You kind of did. It's a tough word to say. But uh, yeah, Ronald George or the chief, as people call them who work really? for him. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, the chief. <laughs> anyway, he's going to be with us in just a few minutes. Uh, we can call him Ron, probably. But first, uh, Marisa, there's a lot to talk about with the presidential race here in California, including some uh, shifting dynamics, perhaps, after former New York mayor and billionaire Michael Bloomberg entered the race. He was in the Bay Area this week, racked up a couple of not insignificant endorsements, I would say. Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton, and Sam Licardo from San Jose. Kind of surprising endorsements, I thought. Like, in a way, given, you know, I, I think that of the people still in this race, of the many, um, I, I, the, th- these weren't the first politicos I expected. You know, I, I don't know if both of them had endorsed endorse Kamala. But, you know, people have been sort of wondering where her endorsements go. And Bloomberg was not the, the you know, where the I obvious choice. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? I think, you know, he has been Bloomberg spreading a lot of money around over the years on the soda taxes, guns, uh, guns, just recently on tobacco against Juul here in San Francisco. And, you know, that that buys, you know, buys you some chits. Well, I mean, and I, I actually would be a little less cynical about it in the sense of like, not that you were, Scott. Uh, yeah, but, but, I, I, but I, you know, I see where you're not, going. I don't think it's just like political, like a political donation where you're like, oh, they gave me money and I'm going to. I think it is really like that he has sort of a created some credentials with even some more progressive folks. Like I think Michael Tubbs in some ways might be seen in Stockton. Um, although it's interesting, you know, the thing that keeps really sort of haunting him is stop and frisk. And that, of course, came up with Tubbs, who is an African-American right. mayor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, also uh, in he also showed up with uh, um, 
former governor Jerry Brown at a uh, at a conference in San Francisco. Interesting. The governor, former governor, has not yet made an endorsement. Uh, I could that could be one. I could I could see him going in that direction. Well, especially interesting because let's not forget it was just a decade ago, a short decade ago, that Bloomberg actually flew out here to campaign against Jerry Brown for, for Meg Whitman. Whitman. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So well, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I I you know you're about to tell us about this poll that um, we are doing with Change Research and. Um, How do you know? I I just have an idea, Scott. Also, it's in my script. Um, I'm going to be really interested to watch how Bloomberg does in California. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he's going to spend a lot of money. We're already seeing ads. And there is, as you suggested, as you presciently mentioned, uh, a poll that uh, Change Research has done with KQED. And it doesn't show a lot of change from the last poll they did for us in October. But uh, Bernie Sanders first among Democratic primary voters at 26 percent, followed by Elizabeth Warren at 23, Joe Biden at 19 Pete Buttigieg, 12, and it goes down from there. Bloomberg's at 3%, uh, but he's also the second choice of 8% of voters. So a lot of ground to make up, obviously. Uh, but, you know, he's got some time and, as we know, a bottomless checkbook. I just feel like this race is still so up in the air. Totally. I mean, we've seen it's sort of like, um, when you know, when you watch like those car races on TV, that, which just go on forever. Right. Like it's like and somebody endless moves loop. the endless loop and it's like someone moves into the first spot and then someone else comes above them. You know, we kind of saw that Kamala peak and then she came down to earth. Warren has slipped a little bit. Um, clearly, I think people who were big Kamala supporters are probably still thinking about where to put you know, their vote. Yeah, it has been interesting to see the fallout, the reaction to Kamala Harris getting out of the race. Uh, she had qualified for the debate next week in Los Angeles, which made it. I think maybe made some people feel especially sad that she was out because that voice uh, is missing, will be missing. Uh, And Cory Booker, the other African-American senator uh, in the race, also has not yet qualified and probably won't. Um, So, yeah, it's uh, I mean, she wasn't getting a huge level of support. On the other hand, I do think a lot of people appreciated her being in the race and, and bringing the voice and the perspective that she added. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and and I think, too, that, you know, the other, obviously, candidate who's been in town this week is Joe Biden. He was in San Francisco Thursday for a donor event with our, our Alto, other actually. Uh, Palo Alto, our other senator, Dianne Feinstein, <laughs> who snubbed Kamala way early. But yeah. I think, you know, I think Biden and Bloomberg are going to be kind of both the most interesting to watch just in the sense of like they are still really running, I think, more traditional campaigns. Um, Biden especially has really spent his time in these closed door events when he's been in California, not doing big rallies, not glad handing people, doing that retail politics. Sort of hiding from the media to a certain extent. It feels like it. Come on. Joe, we'd love to have you on. Come on in. The water's fine. The water's warm. So, um, yeah, I, I do think that it feels like not just in California, but nationally, there's still a lot moving around in this race. And, and I think it's going to really shape up in the beginning of the year. Yeah. And we, as I mentioned, there was this debate next week uh, in Los Angeles Thursday, uh, sponsored by PBS and Politico. And it'll be interesting, Marisa, to see if they address, because they're in California, any particular issues related to California, like homelessness, the cost of housing, climate change, uh, those sorts of things. Um, And that, you know, again, the voice of our senator will not be part of that conversation. Let me just say you'd hope so. We are about 40 million people. I think most of the issues facing us probably face other people in the nation as well. We are somewhat irrelevant, however, when it comes (laughs) to the electoral college. That is a whole whole other conversation. (laughs) Right, exactly. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to talk with the former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, Ronald George. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest this week is the former Chief Justice of California, Ronald George. Chief, welcome. Thanks for coming. Happy to be here. Well, Chief, we do want to talk to you about your early career and all that and your childhood, but I want to begin with something that's, that is happening in the world of the courts today, the increasing politicization of the courts. And it's not new. It didn't begin with Donald Trump, although he in some ways accelerated it. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what, what impact do you think that has on the judiciary and uh, the rule of law? I would like to think that it wouldn't have a direct impact upon judges in deciding cases, but perhaps most importantly, it does impact, I believe, the public's perception of the role of the courts, and that's so critical in these current times, even more so, I think, because of the fact that people are not as well aware of civic rights and responsibilities as they perhaps used to be when it was taught regularly in the schools. Do you think it sort of undermines faith in, in the judiciary? I think it does, and I think it would be very harmful if people viewed the decisions of courts as just one more political act in the equation of conflict among the judicial and uh, executive and legislative branches. But we know, obviously, that, that judges don't do their job in a vacuum. I mean, you all are aware of the political implications of things that are happening, the cultural sort of norms of a society at one time. Um, we hear a lot, you know, people saying, oh, it's about balls and strikes. Um, we're just umpires. But I just wonder how you sort of think about those considerations and, and how much, you know, if you're looking at a at a law, there could be other implications beyond it. And I know we'll get into some of your other your cases later. But like, I don't, is that something that you've struggled with over your time? Well, uh, I did have to, you know, remind myself in my first few months as a trial judge, I went on the bench uh, from the attorney general's office that, of course, I was no longer a prosecutor and I couldn't, um, of course, ignore my own personal experience, but I had to put it aside to the extent possible. I had to keep confessions out, evidence that was illegally obtained uh, or else I would not have been doing my job and my judgment would have been subject to reversal by an appellate court. So you have to make a definite 
effort, mm -hmm. I think, to put aside those things, even though we're all, of course, the product of our background and our upbringing. Let's you, talk about that. Right? Well, yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> you know, uh, you were uh, uh, the son, you are the son of two immigrants. Your dad was from France. Your mom was from Hungary. Um, did they meet in Europe? How did they meet? Yes, they met in Europe. Uh, my father actually uh, left France in his 20s to get a job with an international import-export firm in Mexico, uh, sort of seeking his fortune in the new world, so to speak. And on one of his trips home to visit his parents, he had heard these wonderful things about Southern California, and he took what was then a three-day train trip from Mexico City up to Los Angeles, fell in love with it, saw the opportunities, uh, and uh, settled there and brought my mother back there. So they had met? They had met previously okay. in Europe. You uh, grew up, I think, in Beverly Hills, if yes. the bio is correct. I'm sure it is. Uh, what was that like? I mean, uh, and for them as well, coming from Europe as immigrants and being in Beverly Hills. I mean, did you go to school with kids whose parents were movie stars? Uh, yes, there was some of that. And I guess I almost reacted a bit against that. And uh, How I so? Well, uh, you know, there was a certain, not to generalize too much, but there was a certain level of ostentation and all that. <laughs> Some entitlement there. <laughs> yes. And I think that the uh, school experience in Switzerland helped uh, level the playing field in terms of my perceptions and my experience and, in fact, inclined me toward a career in the Foreign Service. And was that something that was something that you thought you would go into, or was that something your parents were hopeful for? Well, they had raised the possibility, okay. and I was quite receptive to it. And uh, it was interesting because my parents' uh, first year uh, that they brought us there uh, said, "Well, how much instruction will there be in the French language?" Uh, because it was an English-speaking and a French-speaking division. And they said, oh, about an hour, an hour and a half every day. My father says, well, that's not adequate. And after a lot of discussions, insisted that we be enrolled, my sister and I, in the French-speaking division. And we did not speak a word of French, even though our parents often spoke French around the household, especially when they didn't want us to <laughs> know what was going on. So consequently... Um, I had, as an eighth grader, subjects such as uh, science and math and German, which I also didn't speak, taught to me in French. And the Swiss were tough. I got a failing grade every week. But after you know, several uh, weeks, I had a rudimentary knowledge of French. You must, that must have been your only failing grades, probably. Well, uh, that year, uh, they were very kind in the end in the grading. So I came out of okay. A gentleman's seat. <laughs> yes, <laughs> something like that. So you, um, fast forwarding a little bit, you went to Princeton uh, for undergrad, uh, and then you ended up shifting toward the law. You went to Stanford Law School. What was it that shifted you away from sort of an interest in foreign affairs toward the law? Well, my interest in foreign affairs caused me to apply to Princeton where they have this Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. And I studied uh, French and German and Russian as well. And then what was literally a sophomoric adventure, a friend of mine uh, whose father was consul general in Lagos, Nigeria, then a British colony, said he was going to go back for the summer to visit his parents and sort of bum around, if you could call it that, and would uh, like to uh, 
hitchhike around with him for the first half of the summer. He was allowed to do that as the son of the consul general? Uh, yes, but <laughs> it was not literally thumbs out uh, hitchhiking, but we'd find out that someone, whether it was a British colonial officer, an American diplomat, an African or a missionary was going from point X to Y, and we would get a ride. So uh, we did that uh, around the uh, various regions of Nigeria from the north, which borders on the Sahara to the south, the equatorial uh, Ghana, and also what was then the British and French Cameroons. That must have opened your eyes to things. It certainly did, and conditions were, you know, in some places quite primitive where they had not seeing the likes of us, and uh, it was uh, an eye-opening experience. One aspect of it was, though, that, and this was before the Peace Corps and all of that, um, I was not favorably impressed with my experiences with uh, Foreign Service officers then, and I thought they really weren't having any contact with the local populace. And for whatever reasons, I became disillusioned with the whole prospect and then went back uh, to college and applied probably not out of the noblest of motives to law school (laughs) to postpone the decision and leave the options open. So going and you didn't know during the course of law school did you see yourself you know going into public service versus private practice like was there a moment on on that? Well very much so Marisa because um, I was not drawn to private practice uh, of a standard type and The area I loved was constitutional law, and that sort of uh, combined my interest in public policy with the legal training that I was obtaining, and I explored various options, and the one that appealed to me most was the California Attorney General's Office, and especially if one uh, joined the criminal division, you could expect to be in appellate courts uh, constantly, if you were lucky, maybe even get a case that would take you to the California Supreme Court. And so much of it was constitutional law and public policy. How old were you when you first uh, argued a case before the Supreme Court? Uh, I was 28. Wow. And uh, it was fortunate I had to fight to keep that case because normally you had to be five years <laughs> past the bar to. Um, you know, be admitted to the bar of the U.S. Supreme Court, but uh, they let me do it, and here I have to be a little bit immodest. What happened is they liked what I did enough that they gave me five other arguments that were not my cases originally, so it was a rather fascinating experience, and a couple of those cases involve very basic things like the constitutionality of the death penalty. One of the cases you argued, uh, it was the conviction, you defended the conviction of Sirhan Sirhan, uh, who had killed uh, Robert Kennedy four years earlier. What was that like? Yes, that was in the California Supreme Court, and it was uh, quite an interesting case. And uh, in the course of visiting death row on San Quentin because I wanted to be prepared to argue any questions that were raised about the conditions on death row. I was shown around by the warden and inevitably, I guess, we got to Sir Han's cell and um, the warden said, I really feel a need here to introduce the two of you because uh, I don't want it later said that I surreptitiously brought the prosecutor mm. uh, there. So uh, we had a very abbreviated conversation uh, 
What was your impression? Was that of strange? Him? Yeah. 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 Well, the the warden said, uh, uh, Sir Han, this is Mr. George from the Attorney General's office, and uh, Sir Han's reply was, Yes, I. He's trying to get me gassed, and I said, Well. You know, so long. Nice to meet yeah. you. That's kind of the end of that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> He's still alive, so, we might point out. Did yeah. you see yourself becoming a judge? And I, and I wonder, I mean, probably no, nobody imagines becoming the chief justice. But, I mean, was there did, was that a path that you saw as you did more of these prosecutions that you might want to take? I really didn't have it in mind initially, but um, I had the good fortune of having these high publicity cases, the Sirhan case and the six arguments in the U.S. Supreme Court, and I think that brought me to the attention of the governor's office, and uh, I was encouraged to apply for a judgeship by one of the appellate uh, court of appeal justices uh, who, um, uh, you know, presided over cases that I argued. So I did, and then it was a succession over the years of four different governors from both political parties. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest this week is the former Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court, Ronald George. So I want to ask you, because I kind of touched on earlier, you know, the idea of political pressures. But one of your, um, I think, first major rulings as Chief Justice was striking down an abortion law that would essentially that essentially required minors to get parental consent. Yes. Um, it was obviously then as in now, very controversial. And I just wonder if that, like, to that conversation earlier, like, did you have anything in the back of your mind about, wow, a Republican appointed me to this position? This is my first big move. Like, did that weigh on you at all? No, that didn't. But I'll tell you, uh, there was an attempt, certainly, to influence the outcome what had happened was there had been a ruling on that case, the American Pediatrics case, that was not yet final at the time I was nominated to be Chief Justice. And the hearings for confirmation are public hearings. Anyone can speak. So I was basically threatened with uh, a campaign against my retention election if I were to rule that way when the case would be reheard, which everyone assumed it would be since it wasn't final. Mm -hmm. So my answer to that was to assign the case to myself and to do what I thought was right. So uh, I ended up having to raise a great amount of money, around $900,000, to wage a campaign to obtain a majority of yes votes. Well, I, I know that you, uh, when you retired from the bench, uh, didn't want to single out any particular case, but surely uh, the same-sex marriage case was uh, one of the ones for which you are most known, and that was a four-to-three decision which you wrote, uh, striking down California's ban on same-sex marriage. And, of course, a few months later, voters passed Prop 8, and the ban was put back in place. But could you have imagined uh, yourself writing that opinion 10 years earlier? I don't suppose that, frankly, I gave it that much thought, uh, that subject matter. It just wasn't a big issue. It it just wasn't. But as things evolved, I realized certainly that that would be, in my view, in the mainstream of a decision on same-sex marriage. And I guess as some indication of that, the decision that I ruled uh, or that— I relied on, rather, 
mostly was a case called Perez v. Sharp, a 1948 decision of Chief Justice Traynor that struck down the laws that prohibited interracial marriage. And the language of that fit so beautifully in terms of defining what the institution of marriage was and what it signified and the various ramifications that I quoted it at great length in our ruling on same-sex marriage. I read that you had actually written two rulings on that, that you you, you sort of play devil's advocate with yourself to write one that would have upheld the law and one to strike it down. That seems like an unusual approach. Was that something you did a lot? No, this was the only time I ever did that. And what I did beyond that was I went to each of my colleagues when I had prepared a draft and in our way of doing things at the court, that's done before the oral argument. And I told them that I had two approaches and I was going to circulate both of them to each justice the next day. Did you think at that point it was 3-3? I didn't really know. But I said, I really welcome your reactions because they will influence me potentially in terms of how I come down, that I am not totally committed to one side or the other. And sure enough, when I got their reactions, it was three and three, and I was the deciding vote. We, uh, you know, of course, talked to Gavin Newsom over the years about all of this. And I remember you saying at one point that looking out the window from the state Supreme Court and seeing people in line to get married at City Hall influenced you. But one of the things Gavin Newsom also told us is that when he did what he did was to allow same-sex marriage in San Francisco, that a lot of his family and his friends kind of were not happy, to say the least. Deep Catholic background. Deep Catholic background. I'm just wondering, like, what kind of reaction did you get from your friends, your family, the folks that that knew you? Well, you know, uh, on both sides, certainly. I mean, I was uh, told (laughs) by one friend I'd destroy the institution of marriage. (laughs) And uh, that was from somebody who— Perhaps a person who had not totally honored the uh, (laughs) sanctity of marriage. (laughs) So it was rather ironic. I I will just quibble to a slight extent. I I wouldn't say really that I was influenced by seeing people, you know, lined up. I could see them from my chamber's uh, window, and I was aware of that. But I really tried, as I did on all such matters, to decide it as a matter of Law And it did bring me satisfaction, I have to say, after the fact to see how people were overjoyed. Well, I want to ask you about the death penalty. Um, I remember at one point you're saying that something like a third of all the time at the state Supreme Court was taken up by these automatic appeals. And you at one point wrote, uh, when you were still Chief Justice, that the death penalty had become dysfunctional in California. And I think it was also you that said the leading cause of death on death row is old age. Um, What do you make of, of course, this has been on the ballot now a couple times. There were one to eliminate the death penalty, one to expedite it. That's the one that passed. But now the governor has placed a moratorium on execution. What do you make of that? I think that uh, as long as it's on the books, I think that uh, reprieves and so forth should be done on an individualized basis where they're merited, but not on a blanket basis disregarding the law. And uh, that causes complications, I'm sure, for my colleagues who have to pass on judgments knowing that they're 
engaged in what could be viewed as a somewhat uh, wasteful expenditure of time and effort. So uh, I do question that. I think that there are legitimate issues about the death penalty, and I proposed reforms before the legislature to try to expedite the process if we were to have it. As a policy matter, do you support the death penalty? Um, I think one can make an argument that justifies its existence despite whatever constitutional uh, restrictions there are. Whether one should have it or not, I think, depends upon how it's carried out. You can make an argument that in certain cases it deters uh, certain crimes. So those are arguments for the legislature to make, and I think one can make those. But I think that the argument in favor of the death penalty really evaporates when it drags on so long that it cannot serve whatever justification uh, can be made for it. So that's where I argue against the way we do it now. And I had a proposal that they transfer them down to the Court of Appeal, which the Constitution would uh, have to be amended to permit that, instead of having them drag on and on uh, before even counsel is appointed on appeal. Yeah. All right. We like end to end the program. <laughs> we, yeah, we're going to go from the death penalty to something a little more fun. We like to end on something lighter. Uh, I know you're an avid runner, for you example. Still you still running? The knees have told me that it was time to stop, yeah. but I loved my marathoning days. So what's on the bucket list now? Well, you're, you're turning 80 next year, aren't you? Yes, turning 80 in March. And um, party? I, I try to. Well, probably just. Um, go off and uh, do a fun little trip with the family, the kids and grandkids. And I know you and your wife are big travelers, right? We are, and we've tried to take the family, kids and grandkids, on a trip. And we went last summer on a small vessel through the Inland Passage of Alaska. Uh, there were only 10 cabins on board and got to see bears and eagles and, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of... Uh, and whales and glaciers. And it was a wonderful trip. I like the trips to be somewhat educational for our three young grandkids. <laughs> and uh, I'm hopeful that we'll perhaps go to the Galapagos uh, and see Darwin's theories in action there. Survival Sounds of the fittest. Like a good time. <laughs> yeah. Well, Chief Justice Ronald George, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for your many decades of service as well. Well, Scott and Marissa, I truly enjoyed it. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer this week is the fabulous Jeremy Siegel, and our engineer is Rob Spate. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M. Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, 
please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.